Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli and today we're going to talk a little bit about hearing preservation in the context of managing sporadic vestibular schwannoma um, with Dr. Matt Carlson. So Dr. Carlson, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Just to start off with, you know, we obviously already did a podcast episode on vestibular schwannoma. So why are we focusing in on this, this topic today? What's so important about this specific topic? I agree. This this topic is very intriguing for uh, for a number of different reasons. I would say, first of all, you know, the management of a small or medium sized vestibular schwannoma is among the most controversial topics in skull base surgery or skull base groups in general. And then when you talk about hearing preservation among the three treatment modalities, it gets even more controversial. And so I'll uh, I'll do my best to present some of the different sides or different takes on some of the positions on uh, best management for patients, but it's a fascinating topic that um, I'm excited to talk about. You know, there's a lot of things that have changed over time. It used to be that uh, as providers and patients alike were willing to accept more risk to treat the tumor because not a lot was known about these tumors early on. Uh, it was felt that these always resulted in growth, and if they weren't treated, they would result in significant morbidity. After all, they are a brain tumor. And so patients, particularly when their tumors were large, would accept a hearing loss or even facial nerve paralysis, and providers would often feel the same way. There's been a dramatic shift in the epidemiology, which is probably largely driven by widespread access to MRI and screening protocols for asymmetrical and sudden hearing loss. And today, this has resulted in a significant shift in the epidemiology and disease presentation, such that the average age has increased by about 10 or 15 years over the last 30 or 40 years. So the average age at diagnosis is now in the early 60s. And more patients are presenting with smaller tumors and better hearing, which really presents a treatment dilemma. If you think back to the earlier years, probably there were many people walking around with these tumors that didn't know about it and were probably all the better off for not knowing about it because the treatment often risks hearing loss and some of this morbidity. And that's really what we're stuck with today, a situation of how do we provide the patient with the best outcome knowing that they have a tumor uh, and weighing the pros and cons of the different treatment modalities. As we'll get into when we talk about this more, what I think is fascinating and really probably the main point of this whole thing is the same features that make one tumor favorable for one treatment modality also render it favorable for another treatment modality. And when you look at studies, there's usually significant selection bias such that the organizing institution that's reporting the outcomes have a preference towards what they're reporting. So the, micro, the groups that report microsurgical outcomes report pretty good outcomes because they're cherry picking or they're, they're performing hearing preservation in a lot of the best uh, patients, best candidates. The groups that are observing and reporting the best outcomes in those groups also are, you know, the, their patients will often do well because they have the same features. And the same thing for radio surgery. And so I think when we look at the data and we think about this, we have to think very broadly and consider all the different biases that are present in the studies that we're reviewing. You mentioned this shift in disease epidemiology where you have older patients with smaller tumors and less symptoms. Looking at that a little bit more closely, I take it a, a number of these patients are actually incidentally diagnosed nowadays. Is that correct? Well, that's very true. So if you look at the if you look at modern series in the last 10 or 15 years, and you look at disease presentation, still most studies show over 90% of people have an asymmetrical hearing loss where the affected ear has poor hearing. And maybe 5 to 15% of people will have an episode or more of sudden sensorineural hearing loss in the ear that's affected by the tumor. Tinnitus is present in about 60 or 70% of people. And dizziness is actually, well, uh, vestibular loss is usually present if you did uh, VNG testing on a lot of these patients. They don't usually complain of a lot of dizziness because the slow tumor growth afforded by the vestibular schwannoma usually creates a situation where the patient can adequately compensate through central compensation and the, the dizziness, so to speak, isn't as noticeable to them. But there is some literature, particularly in areas that have greater access to healthcare and specifically to MRI scanners. There are some uh, areas in the United States in particular and abroad where uh, access is greater. And in these areas in particular, you see a higher incidence. That's probably not because uh, the disease is more endemic in these areas. It's probably just because that mere, a mere reflection of having uh, more MRIs around a person has headache, a person has dizziness, a person has any symptom these days, and you might get a head MRI. And so some of the literature will show that up to 10 to 25% of patients with uh, vestibular schwannomas initially present with unattributable symptoms in an incidental manner. So they could have something completely unrelated, get a head scan, and lo and behold, uh, there's a tumor. And what do we do with it in that situation? 
So obviously there's a whole subset of the patient populace here in Vesivishonoma where they don't have useful hearing at time of presentation. So this topic is maybe not as applicable to them. But when we think about the patients that actually present with um, useful or serviceable hearing, how many of patients with sporadic Vesivishonoma are presenting in this way? So that's a great question. I think uh, the, the good questions in, in, for this um, podcast are how many people present with quote unquote functional or useful hearing? And at the end of a group's journey, if you take a large cohort of patients down the three different pathways, where again, we're mainly talking about smaller, medium-sized tumors, where all three treatment modalities are reasonable um, considerations, you know, how many ultimately re- retain useful hearing in the affected ear after 10 years or further? So if you look at disease presentation, most modern series will show that about half of patients present with what we call useful hearing. And that usually indicates a situation where they could probably use the telephone in the ear, or if you turn up the volume with a conventional hearing aid, that they'll be able to use it. I I will say, you know, how we define useful hearing is not necessarily how the patient defines useful hearing. We did have a study uh, out of our group uh, that demonstrated that actually, if you ask a patient when hearing starts to become non-useful to them or non-functional, even with a hearing aid, they'll tend to report around 70% word recognition. And so we tend to be a little bit more lenient with what we would call useful compared to a patient. And probably part of this is um, needs to be viewed in the context of what the patient's hearing is in their other ear. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But certainly somebody who has a lot of hearing loss in the other ear will probably hold on to 70% or even 50% as useful, but somebody with pristine hearing in the other ear will think that even a little bit of hearing loss is not, you know, renders their ear not as useful. So long story short, about 50% of people present with functional hearing at the time of diagnosis. And if you follow a large cohort of patients, regardless of their treatment modality, by 10 years on, on the whole, probably less than 10% to 15% of people will retain hearing uh, long-term if you look at the entire cohort. And then if you start with the group of people that had serviceable hearing at the beginning, less than a quarter still will have useful hearing in that ear. And so um, when we're counseling patients, a lot of, this, uh, a lot of the care surrounds uh, adequate counseling. Um, I think it's important to say that we will try to save their hearing, but if you, again, if you look at the whole cohort, usually the odds are the, the patient will develop non-useful hearing in the affected ear, but in general, the great majority of people adjust to this very well, and there are some things we can do to rehabilitate that hearing loss that we can talk about later as well. I think maybe this would be a good time to touch on, um, from a research standpoint, or um, obviously there's a clinical correlate here, but how, how do we define serviceable hearing in this context? Uh, Well, there's a lot of different um, classification systems for serviceable hearing, and I think the best ones are weighted uh, or weight word recognition score the highest or have a priority on that because if once you start losing word recognition, it doesn't really matter what your pure tones are if you still can't discern words. So there is a word rec- or a serviceable hearing classification system that just uses word recognition score and actually doesn't pay much attention to pure, doesn't pay any attention to pure tone average. The one that's most commonly used uh, is the AAO HNS classification system that was originally proposed in 1995. Uh, there is a parallel classification system in uh, neurosurgery called the Gardner-Robertson classification system. And uh, fortunately, uh, or conveniently, the cutoff for what we call functional or serviceable versus non-serviceable are similar between both uh, classification systems, which is convenient for research purposes. But basically, the easy way to remember it is the 50-50 rule. If a person's hearing, uh, sorry, pure tone average is better than 50 dB in the affected ear, and if their word recognition score is better than 50% in the affected ear, then we would classify them as having serviceable hearing. Uh, And if you're less than that, you'd be considered to have non-serviceable hearing. I'd encourage you to, whenever you read a study, the devil's in the details, you have to look at the inclusion criteria, both uh, on the um, for study inclusion, but also definition of outcome of serviceable hearing, because it varies by study. And so some studies will include people with class A, B, or C on the front end, or just A and B. And then on the outcome, some people will include classifications of A, B, or C on the other end. And uh, just for reference or context, classification A and B by most standards is considered uh, functional or serviceable hearing. So you really need to look at those uh, that detail when you're uh, considering outcomes of, of individual studies. Maybe too, like uh, going off of that point you mentioned earlier, just the follow-up duration I guess, in looking at an outcome that's inherently dependent on time, when we know that at 10 years, the vast majority of people don't retain serviceable hearing, that seems like an important point. 
Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. That, I think that's a critical point when you examine these studies. If you say, what's the likelihood somebody at diagnosis will retain serviceable hearing the day after diagnosis? It's 100% of people. If you take that same group during observation, you say after five years, it drops down a lot. And then after 10 years, it drops down even more. Same is true for radio surgery uh, and microsurgery to some degree. And so the most important risk factor for development of non-serviceable hearing is time since diagnosis or, or having the treatment. And so uh, using a time-to-event analysis like a Kaplan-Meier plot is critical when you're examining outcomes. And I would say very, very particularly for radio surgery and observation, it's even more crucial. And we'll, we can get into some of those nuances later. The other thing I want to mention, uh, just getting back to the idea of the knowing the details of your study so you can compare, understand it better, is the idea of tumor size in measurements. So there is a standard way that we're supposed to measure tumor size, and it's not followed all the time in every study. Fortunately, the study will usually define how the tumor size is determined, but looking at that is also important. In ENT, we usually don't use the COOS uh, staging system for tumor size. It's typically used in the neurosurgical literature. And I would say that that's a pretty unuseful uh, classification system. It just basically looks at tumor size based on uh, size and the degree of brainstem compression, but it doesn't give you an absolute size. So just if you're talking about tumor size, what I would consider the best way to do it, at least for reporting, so there's consistency across studies, is to, um, for tumors that are isolated to the internal auditory canal, you just measure maximum diameter. And usually most internal auditory canals are anywhere from 0.8 to 1.4 centimeters. And then if your tumor extends in the cerebellopontine angle, you should only measure the cisternal component of the tumor. So you should only measure the maximum diameter in the cerebellopontine angle. The 1995 uh, reporting guideline uh, recommends measuring both in the parallel and uh, perpendicular planes to the Petrus Ridge to get that CPA diameter. I would say that that's probably a little bit better, um, but it's pretty close to maximum diameter in the CPA. The pitfall is if you're comparing a study that measures the entire length of the tumor, including the IEC portion going into the CPA and comparing that to another study that's just using the CPA component, you basically will add 0.6 to 1.2 you know, centimeters to any CPA size when you, if you don't do that correctly, which significantly changes your reported outcomes since size is a primary predictor of hearing preservation outcome, particularly for microsurgery. So I'd really encourage you to pay attention to the details, how something was measured and what defines functional hearing at the front end and how the outcome of interest is defined on the back end, serviceable hearing, all critical features. And then of course, as you mentioned, the importance of uh, duration of follow-up and following it in a time-to-event analysis. You know, since you bring this up, um, I know it's a little controversial, but how, how connected do you think of the tumor size and relationship with, you know, presenting with serviceable hearing or just the severity of hearing loss? It is an amazing thing. Um, just naturally or intuitively, you would think that the size of the tumor at presentation would correlate strongly with the degree of hearing loss. As a parallel, you might say if a tumor is growing, it's more likely to develop more hearing loss. And you might even go so far as to believe that if a tumor is not growing, additional hearing loss should not occur. Unfortunately, it's, it's not that clean. Uh, we've all seen patients present with very large tumors and absolutely normal hearing. We've seen the very small tumors that are only two millimeters at the fundus and the patient develops a sudden uh, sensory hearing loss in the affected ear or develops non-serviceable hearing from a very small tumor. In general, there is a loose association between tumor size and hearing, but I will say, again, emphasize it's a loose association. There's also a loose association between tumor growth in development in progressive hearing loss. Said another way, it's expected that even if your tumor doesn't grow, you'll still acquire progressive hearing loss at a rate faster than what you would expect to see from presbycusis or just you know living longer. Um, very interesting aspects uh, to consider when we think about um, hearing loss. And that probably, you know, speaks to the multifactorial causes or what the drivers of what actually uh, causes uh, sensory hearing loss. Yeah, I think that's that's a perfect segue. I want to talk a little bit about the mechanisms of hearing loss. And obviously, ostensibly, it's easy to just assume that it's all nerve compression by mass effect from the tumor. But it seems like there's been some other theories that have gained traction in recent years. Can you speak to not only the mass effect component, but some of these other theories out there on mechanism of hearing loss? Absolutely. Um, I think there's uh, some information that we've uh, just 
recently been able to see from several different types of clinical work that help us understand this a little bit better. Um, and we'll go through those. But as you had mentioned, the most obvious or intuitive cause for sensory neural hearing loss in the setting of a vestibular schwannoma is nerve compression. And so as the tumor grows and it squeezes within the rigid confines of the internal auditory canal, it will cause pressure on the cochlear nerve. Uh, and result in a hearing loss. It might also cause pressure on the terminal branch of ICA that feeds the internal ear called the labyrinthine artery. And so conceivably, that could also cause a hearing loss. There are some interesting things that we've observed uh, more recently in the last you know, 10 to 20 years. And one is with better imaging, we can see that there's a change in the protein content in the inner ear and also the fundus when if there's a CSF cuff. Just something to mention on the side, we'll be talking about this uh, CSF fundal cap or fluid cap, and that's basically um, some tumors do not extend all the way to the fundus or the lateral part of the internal artery canal, and you can have a little cleft of fluid there, and that's referred to a fu- as a fundal cap or a CSF cap. So going back to what I was talking about, that fundal fluid and also the internal um, or the inner ear can demonstrate what we call a dirty T2 signal. So Normally, the inner ear should be very bright on T2, but it can get um, less bright compared to the other side. That's probably from an increase in protein content. And, and if you use T2 flare, you can see a significant amount of enhancement with flare uh, in the inner ear and also in, at the fundus. And a lot of people say that this is uh, basically the result of a buildup of inflammatory proteins in the inner ear. Or it could be an issue of poor circulation of fluid. And so it's just a, it's not necessarily secreted by the tumor, but the tumor blocks circulation of some of this fluid and the jury's still out on it. But it has been shown to be uh, somewhat of a prognosticator for the development of non-serviceable hearing, actually with all three treatment modalities, interestingly. Another uh, thing, another um, potential contributor is invasion of the cochlear nerve or actually growing into it or invasion of the inner ear. I would say that this is probably a bigger issue with NF2, where you have multiple tumors that often coalesce um, into single larger nodular tumors, where many tumors might actually originally arise from the cochlear nerve. In contrast, for sporadic vestibular schwannomas, most of the tumors do arise from the vestibular divisions of the eighth nerve, and invasion of the nerve, a cochlear nerve, is probably less prevalent. And also invasion of the inner ear through the fundus is less common for sporadic tumors. It does, it does occur, but it's less common. There's some interesting um, basic uh, information we've gleaned from recent uh, clinical work. One thing that I think is fascinating is that if you, take, if you uh, use radiosurgery and you treat a vestibular schwannoma, uh, they'll usually, at least based on my interpretation of the data, develop a hearing loss that progresses faster than if you just observe that patient. And we've always thought that this was related to radiation dose to the cochlear nerve. So if it was a bigger tumor, you get more cochlear nerve dose or dose to the cochlea, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But what's really interesting is there's also something inherent about just having the tumor on the nerve. So if you if you would radiate a jugular paraganglioma, one that sits in the middle ear and abuts the cochlear promontory at a very high at a higher dose for a jugular paraganglioma, we'll often use 16 gray to the margin as compared to a hearing preservation radiosurgery for a vestibular schwannoma, usually 12 grade of the margin, patients with paragangliomas retain their hearing longer at higher doses to the cochlea than we do for vestibular schwannomas. So that's a, one interesting thing that we can potentially use to understand the etiology of hearing loss in vestibular schwannomas. The other is uh, the amazing uh, discovery that cochlear implants work in a lot of patients with vestibular schwannomas. If it was solely from nerve compression uh, or destruction of the cochlear nerve, it would be hard to understand how a cochlear implant might uh, work in a lot of these patients. And it's been our experience that if it's a smaller, medium-sized tumor, particularly if they've never had surgery before, the likelihood that a cochlear implant will work, or at least the patient will receive auditory percepts for the implant, is very high, even if they have um, anacusis. Another interesting observation, uh, particularly with regard to surgery, you say, well, how does a person lose hearing uh, with microsurgery? Well, the most obvious thing would be injury to the cochlear nerve or vascular uh, injury to the labyrinthine artery or something else. Even if for patients, if you say, if you don't enter the inner ear, so you don't do an inadvertent labyrinthotomy when you're doing a retrosigmoid approach or middle fossa approach, um, and they develop non-serviceable hearing later on, either acutely or longer term, they usually get a progressive ossification of the inner ear. 
they'll start losing that cochlear lumen uh, and labyrinthine lumen, and it will start to ossify and fibrose. And that has led a lot of people to think that there's this delayed vascular event that can happen in some patients as well. So it's like most things in medicine and surgery, it's probably not one thing. Uh, there's probably multiple things contributing, and one might contribute more in a particular patient, but all are probably on the table right now. Transitioning to talking a little bit more specifically about uh, management modalities available to patients presenting with serviceable hearing, could you first just provide maybe a conceptual framework to understand just the general approach to managing patients with sporadic vestibular schwannoma who present with serviceable hearing? Yeah, and this this is where a lot of the controversy uh, starts. So if a person presents uh, with good hearing, um, there's a lot of things to consider. If you look at quality of life outcomes in vestibular schwannomas, you'll see that actually unilateral hearing loss has a less, less of a significant impact than a lot of other things, including headache, dizziness, facial nerve dysfunction, and other things. But it's, so it's, but I wouldn't say it's not important uh, for a lot of reasons, but probably the most important reason is even though it's not, it doesn't carry the most weight when you consider each thing, it is certainly among the most prevalent things. So on a population level, it has a significant impact on the whole the population of patients with vestibular schwannomas. Um, there's been an evolution in the field, and really, we are trying to maximally preserve function uh, however we can. Having said that, there's a lot of factors that weigh in to determine what the best treatment pathway is. And I would say probably in the United States, patient preference is the largest factor when a person presents with a smaller, medium-sized tumor. A lot of times, patients have done a lot of homework. They've done a lot of reading, both in, the, um, in blogs, uh, through patient uh, support sites, and also scientific articles, which um, is pretty amazing. Uh, some of the patients we talk to with the, the breadth of knowledge that they have when they come to the table. So I think you have to look at the patient in their full context. Do they have other symptoms that are really bothering them? Do they have a significant anxiety over just the diagnosis of the tumor? Even though they've observed it for a period of time, and they just say they're fixated on it. It bothers them. They would rather have it out. Is the dizziness really the, the problem? And what sort of dizziness is it? Is it a dizziness that might improve with the treatment? There's all these different factors. The other thing that is a really important factor is the hearing level in the contralateral ear. Is hearing in the opposite ear uh, going down? Is it functional or not? Um, these are all uh, major considerations. Before diving deeper about the specific management modalities, um, we've talked throughout the whole episode just about different patient factors or tumor factors that might prognosticate a better outcome for hearing long-term. How do you weight these different factors? What are maybe the most important factors that you think of when looking at a patient, thinking about their chance of hearing preservation long-term? What are kind of the key factors that you think are the most important ones to, to take note of? That's a great question. And again, the same factors that make a person uh, have a better prognosis for hearing preservation with one modality often are the same that make a person a better hearing preservation candidate for a different modality. Um, but if I had to weight the importance of the different ones, I'd say I think there's probably three primary positive prognostic indicators for retaining hearing, even with all three treatment modalities. The first and by far the most important, particularly when we talk about surgery, is tumor size. There's, based on my interpretation of literature, there's nothing else that predicts the likelihood, the probability of retaining serviceable hearing after surgery. And it probably has some impact with the different treatments, at least to some degree. Uh, the second is what a person's word recognition score and pure tone average are at disease presentation. Um, so if you have um, a patient that presents with very good word recognition score, they probably have a good chance of retaining that for a long time. And specifically, there is some literature that says there's something magical about having 100% word recognition. Uh, that is, if you have 100% word recognition, you'll retain it for quite a long time after radio surgery, have a better chance with microsurgery, and during observation, uh, you also have a better chance. I think most obviously uh, that's just related to buffer. So the more you have that you can lose and still retain it, the more likely you are to retain it longer. So you have more you have more buffer. But there probably is a ceiling uh, effect where if you score 100% word recognition, that's the upper limit of that. That's the top of what you can do in that test. And you might have significantly better hearing than somebody who has even 90% word recognition or 95% word recognition. So your quote buffer is even is even larger. Another thing that shows up uh, to be a common predictor, primarily we think about it in the microsurgery literature, but 
I, I think it actually is the same thing, at least uh, to some degree in the radio surgery literature. And that's the fluid fundal cap. The further away the lateral margin of the tumor is to the fundus, the more likely you are to save hearing with surgery and probably also with radio surgery. Although we don't call it fundal cap in radio surgery, we call it cochlear dose. But they basically are indirect measures of the same thing. The farther you are from the cochlea, because of a larger fundal cap, the lower your cochlear dose is. And so, again, they're not exactly the same thing, but they are uh, significantly overlapping terms. And probably with observation, uh, having a fundal cap also portends a better long-term outcome. There are some less um, strong factors that have been shown in some studies. So tumor growth. Uh, some studies show that if, you're, if your tumor is growing, you're more likely to lose it quicker. But again, you're expected that you'll lose hearing even if your tumor doesn't grow. A second is that flare signal or dirty T2 signal in the inner ear or at the fundus is one that's been found in several studies. And what I like uh, to talk about is your trajectory of hearing loss. The best way to know what something's going to do is to see what it's done in the past. And so commonly we'll kind of look at the person's first audiogram and use that as a predictor, as a static predictor, which really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think the best thing is to see, are they, are they retaining that over their first couple audiograms or is it dropping down precipitously or you know quickly? If it's dropping down quickly, they're probably destined to develop non-serviceable hearing much faster than somebody who's uh, really held on to it um, at the beginning for a while. You know, w one of the things you said in there was your interpretation of the literature. Um, I, you've said that once before, too, and I, th I think it speaks to just this being a very controversial topic. But I don't, I don't know that we've actually spelled out exactly what is the controversy. Could you just, I guess recap before we move into the different management modalities, what is the controversy in a nutshell? So the question is, does intervening early protect a person from developing hearing loss in the, in the, in the ear with the tumor? We already said that even if, so if you're observing your tumor, so you don't get treatment and your tumor doesn't grow, we've already said that you're likely to, to have progressive hearing loss faster than what age would uh, give you. And so the question is, if you intervene early with surgery or radio surgery, is it protective? That is where the controversy lies. Um, I'd say it, it, it even gets more complex um, and probably we won't get into too much of this detail, but there is a lot of data that says that tumors can uh, start to grow and stop, start and grow and stop. And so do you, you know, what's the best time to intervene if you start on an observational course with a patient as well? But I would say there are different schools of thought. Uh, there are some centers that are very interested in hearing preservation surgery for small tubers and people who have very good hearing at baseline, saying that if we see a tumor that's small and we have a high probability of removing it, then maybe that person will retain useful hearing for much longer. So it's kind of this upfront gamble for long-term gain. The same thing with radio surgery. The idea is that if you uh, treat somebody who has 100% word recognition, very good hearing, and you get them before their tumor grows, you might be able to save them from that progressive hearing loss. There are very few studies, in my opinion, that support um, upfront microsurgery or radiosurgery. And uh, I know that this <laughs> will um, have a lot of, there are definitely people out there that disagree with me and that's okay. Um, I do think that there are, a lot of this is up to the patient. And um, if a patient presents at a younger age with good hearing and a small tumor, we definitely present hearing preservation microsurgery and even radiosurgery as a viable option for them. They're not bad choices. I think the important thing is to give your patient uh, the best data that you know of and so they can make a good decision about it. It's that shared decision-making that reduces patient regret uh, later on so that they felt like they had a hand in the process and, and uh, they are more likely to accept the outcome on the other end. We've already touched on uh, many of the elements of radio surgery, for instance, the marginal dose and um, <clears throat> just that idea of treating a uh, temporal bone paraganglioma and that the cochlear dose may not be telling the whole story. But if you're counseling a patient on pursuing radiosurgery in somebody that has, has very good hearing up front, how would you counsel them on the um, chances of them retaining the hearing, the advantages of pursuing radiosurgery? I guess stated otherwise, what, from your view, what is the argument to pursue radiosurgery up front in patients with serviceable hearing? So radio surgery was originally looked at as a hearing preservation strategy. And it is in the sense that in the short term, most people don't acquire a sudden hearing loss or a precipitous drop, but they do tend to progress a little faster than somebody uh, who was uh, who's treatment naive. 
when radio surgery originally started to gain in popularity in the 90s uh, for vestibular schwannomas, the marginal dose used was significantly higher. And with that higher marginal dose, the risk of facial nerve paralysis, even though it was low at the time, was higher than we'd like. And the rate of acquiring non-serviceable hearing was also uh, quite a bit higher. Over time, we've seen that tumor control outcomes are comparable, uh, but functional outcomes are better when we lower the marginal dose to about 12 gray for people with uh, serviceable hearing. If a person starts off with um, serviceable hearing or functional hearing and they receive a marginal dose of 12 gray with a single fraction, if you take a large group of people, on average at uh, five years, about 50% of people retain serviceable hearing, and at about 10 years, uh, about 25% of people will retain serviceable hearing. Again, if they start off with much better hearing, 100% word recognition, you're probably looking more at like 30% or maybe even 40% at 10 years. So it uh, it has a lot to do with where you start off at. So what's the you know what's the benefit of treating upfront with radio surgery? Well, again, that's controversial. If you ascribe to the idea that it can be protective, then there's your answer. You're you're treating the tumor when it's the smallest it'll ever be. The hearing is the best it'll ever be, and the patients in their best health. And so using it upfront to be protective is reasonable with that rationale. Most people, again also controversial. Most people do not advocate for treating a small vestibular schwannoma with radiosurgery before seeing that it's grown. And that's based on the idea that not all tumors grow immediately following diagnosis. And the goal of radiosurgery is to stop growth. And so if the tumor was not going to grow for a period of time, you may have not needed that treatment during that period of time. That's the counter to it. And I would say that in our practice, if you're presenting with a tumor less than about 1.5 centimeters maximum diameter in the angle, we don't usually use upfront radiosurgery unless the patient understands all of the pros and cons and decides to go that way. We'll usually observe to see if it grows before we treat it. If a tumor is larger than that, at 1.5 or larger, our cutoff in general for considering radiosurgery for a vestibular schwannoma is about 2.5 centimeters. There's literature that says it's very reasonable up to 3 centimeters, and even some limited series that say it says you can use it higher. I use it for larger uh, tumors. In general, we will use uh, we will use radiosurgery for up to about 2.5 centimeters in the angle. When you're between 1.5 and 2.5, and you're considering radiosurgery, we do usually treat upfront in many cases because your tumor's already getting a little bit bigger, and you have less cushion. Uh, so if you're just say your tumor's two centimeters, and you're uh, you decide to observe it, which we don't normally do, and it grows three or four millimeters, all of a sudden you're at the upper limit of what we consider safe or reasonable to radiate. And then just say you're one of the unlucky people that develops a lot of peritumoral edema, brainstem edema, and or pseudoprogression. So the tumor is growing, even though we're not saying it's failed, and you get a lot of brainstem edema. Uh, that's a less optimal outcome. So less than 1.5 centimeter size, we typically won't treat up front with radiosurgery unless the patient uh, advocates for it. But in the 1.5 to 2.5, we will consider upfront radiosurgery treatment if that's the pathway they decide to go on based on uh, counseling. Just to clarify, when you say less than 1.5 in the angle, won't consider upfront radiosurgery, you're talking you won't consider upfront radiosurgery for the purposes of hearing preservation in those patients? Well, actually, for for either, just in general, uh, we don't consider upfront radiosurgery treatment to be a hearing preservation strategy. Again, uh, there are other people that feel differently about it, and they have their evidence that they'll, or data they'll turn to. But based on my interpretation of the evidence, upfront radiosurgery in general is not a protective treatment for hearing. Okay, what about upfront microsurgery? There are some differences between radiosurgery and microsurgery. Uh, There's some obvious ones, but even when you talk about benefits, one of the benefits, so if you have a a successful outcome with radiosurgery, your tumor doesn't grow. If you have a successful outcome with microsurgery, your tumor is gone. And so some people say that 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 difference in outcome justifies the greater risk to some degree. A lot of people would say surgery is the only treatment that actually provides a cure. You get another MRI and it's no longer there. The likelihood of it coming back is lower. Um, So what's the thought process behind microsurgery? Well, upfront microsurgery to save hearing. The idea is the same as probably what a lot of people would use for the argument for upfront radiosurgery, um, although I probably ascribe to a little bit more for microsurgery. The idea is that if you approach the tumor when it's the smallest, it'll be they have the best hearing they'll ever have, and they're the youngest and healthiest they'll ever be moving forward. 
then that's your ideal opportunity to kind of get that, what we call uh, the vestibular schwannoma trifecta, complete tumor removal, hearing preservation, and normal facial nerve function. Um, but it is an upfront gamble. If you, if you lose, so just backing up, hearing preservation rates are different, uh, can be different between centers and, and experience. In general, with an experienced center and a small tumor under 0.5 centimeters in the internal auditory canal, so pretty small tumor, your hearing preservation rate is going to probably be over 60%. A lot of that depends on where it is. Is it in the fundus, et cetera? Once it starts getting around one centimeter and larger, the the rate drops a bit. And when you get over about 1.5 or two centimeters, your rate goes down to less than 10% by most series. You're talking about 1.5 or two in the angle now. Yep. Yeah. So once your tumor starts getting that big, your your chance of hearing preservation goes down. So the idea is that if you use, if you consider microsurgery for hearing preservation, you're going to primarily, and I, I use the word cherry pick. It sounds like a bad thing, but it it's it's it is what it is. You're taking patients with the most optimal tumors and patient factors to try to win that gamble and put the odds in their favor. And it, it is a reasonable thing if the patient understands the pros and cons, um, and particularly when you're considering a younger patient. Younger patients, uh, the, the reason we lean a little bit more towards microsurgery is microsurgery is the most definitive of all the three treatment modalities, meaning it's the least likely to recur. And we know outcomes from microsurgery, long-term outcomes from microsurgery, probably a little bit better than we do for other options since it's been used for over 100 years. And, you know, the question is, will radiosurgery keep a tumor at bay for 40, 50, 60, 70 years if a person was radiated at the age of 20, 30, or 40? Completely outside this talk, and I don't want to give it too much time because um, for a lot of reasons, but, you know, the idea of accumulated risk over time uh, with radiosurgery early on, the, the effects of radiosurgery are protracted over time, and so you might have an elevated risk of some of the real bad things. Again, people will bring up the idea of a malignancy with radiosurgery, but I'd, in general, that risk in the sporadic vestibular schwannoma group is perceived to be less or more, sorry, more rare than one in 2000. So really uncommon. It might be elevated in the NF2 group who already have tumor prone syndromes and a, and a knock on their tumor suppressor gene in the NF2 uh, gene. But those are some of the reasons and some of the, the logic that people will go back and forth on these different topics. So when you're thinking about pursuing upfront microsurgery for hearing preservation, how do you decide between uh, retrosig and middle fossa? Is it surgeon preference or tumor factors? What are your thoughts on that? If you read a textbook, they'll say this. They'll say small tumor, particularly, you know, just confined to the internal auditory canal that's lateral in the internal auditory canal in a younger patient under 60 equals middle fossa approach. And larger tumor, any degree of CPA extension, or in a patient who's over the age of 60, for example, retrosigmoid approach. That's what you'll read in a textbook. And then you'll also read, uh, if you do surgery on somebody who has a tumor over 1.5 or 2 centimeters that has hearing, do a trans lab <laughs> because the chance that you'll save their hearing is low, which is something we don't really agree with uh, from a philosophical standpoint, but you'll see that in the literature as well. So that's what you'll read in textbooks. What, it, what is used practically? It's primarily what is uh, what the institution has the best experience with. Sometimes we'll get a patient that says, that comes in with one approach. They say, I want to have this approach. I think this is going to be the best approach. And we often agree with them. Uh, we'll talk about the different, you know, the nuances of e each individual approach. But in general, you want to go with what you have the most experience with and what you do the best at. Some centers will use the middle fossa approach for tumors that are going into the angle, even up to a centimeter in the angle. Other people will use the retrosigmoid approach for every hearing preservation surgery. Some people will use the retrosigmoid approach for every single vestibular schwannoma surgery, hearing preservation or not. So what we read in textbooks is very different than what we see practically. Most of the literature says that when you, when you compare pound for pound a vestibular schwannoma of equal size, the retrosigmoid approach and the middle cranial fossa approach have very comparable outcomes. They're very, very close. In general, the retrosigmoid literature will say that the hearing preservation rates are just a little bit poorer than middle fossa, but that's also based on selection bias and that middle cranial fossa is usually selected for smaller tumors. And if you recall, we just said that size is the single most important factor uh, for predicting a successful outcome uh, with microsurgery. That whole 60 years of age is flexible. We look more at the 
person's biological age rather than their chronological age. Some people are 50, look like they're 100, and some people are 100, look like they're 20. And so um, more about, you know, how healthy they are and things. But in general, it's thought that temporal lobe, the temporal lobe is um, more susceptible to injury or the dura is um, more adherent or more likely to um, not hold up with the middle, a subtemporal middle cranial fossa once you start getting over 60, 65, maybe 70, depending on who you ask. This is a, maybe a little bit divergent, but but relevant, I feel like, enough. Um, what about post-operative headache between the two? Yeah, so if you're, again, we're going to take translab out of the picture, and we're only going to compare middle cranial fossa and retrosigmoid approach. And just before I start, you're going on to what you asked about, which is a commonly talked about question. I'm just going to present the issue of facial nerve paresis between the two. Um, most people believe, and the data does show, that at least transient facial nerve paresis is higher in the middle cranial fossa approach compared to the retrosigmoid approach when you compare tumors of equal size. And that's simply because on a middle cranial fossa approach, generally speaking, the facial nerve is between the surgeon and the tumor more than on a retrosigmoid approach. The uh, facial nerve uh, often comes over the top, particularly around the region of the fundus. And so it's you're working on both sides uh, of the nerve. Again, somewhat controversial, but I would say that it, it's, in my opinion, that the data is pretty clear that at least temporary weakness is greater with the middle fossa approach compared to the retrosigmoid approach. So that's uh, uh, something in the favor of a retrosigmoid approach. Some people say your visualization of the whole internal auditory canal is better on a middle cranial fossa approach. They'll say that you can see all the way from the porous, which is the medial opening of the internal auditory canal, all the way to the fundus on a, on a middle cranial fossa. And that's not completely true. Um, you do probably see on average a little bit more lateral, but you still don't see underneath the transverse crest. And even that remnant of tumor underneath the facial nerve very laterally can be difficult uh, to see directly. Even if you use endoscopes, that's uh, still somewhat challenging to see. People who do the retrosigmoid approach a lot for hearing preservation will use uh, techniques such as following the endolymphatic duct and sac all the way out. Uh, and you can get very lateral on the internal canal as well, but probably not on average as lateral as the middle cranial fossa approach. And so in general, there's uh, oftentimes a blind lateral one third in the retrosigmoid approach. Again, um, a little controversial. People have different opinions about this, but in general, that's the, the thought that most people have. This also can be at least partially addressed by use of endoscopes, just like you can for other things. Now, getting to the uh, the question about headache, um, there's a lot of data, particularly in the 1990s, that said the retrosigmoid approach had a higher incidence of headache compared to the middle cranial fossa approach or the translab approach for that matter. A lot of this came from the literature that looked at comparing um, MVDs, so microvascular decompressions, where you went into the posterior fossa via retrosigmoid approach, and they would compare those to people who had a retrosigmoid for vestibular schwannoma. And they noticed the differences, people with uh, who had a tumor resection had a poor headache profile. And a lot of that's thought to do with dissemination of bone dust in the posterior fossa that might cause an aseptic meningitis or headache or uh, meningeal irritation. Um, there's some thought that um, after you do a craniectomy, so specifically taking out or drilling away your bone flap so you don't have one to put back, could result in adhesions of your nuchal muscles on your dura that could cause headache. Some people have tried to obviate that or mitigate that by, even on a craniectomy, by using methyl methacrylate or some other sort of substance, even including fat sometimes, to reduce that adhe adherence to the dura. Other possible causes of headache that's elevated in the retrosigmoid approach include injury to the occipital nerve, so occipital neuralgia. Um, and then lastly, some people, particularly heavy men, uh, just have a ton of neck muscle that goes real high on the nuchal line. And uh, you have to get through that to get to the retrosigmoid approach. And so going through more muscle inevitably causes more pain. If you look at short-term data, I believe that headaches on average are worse in the retrosigmoid approach. You're just going through more tissue, period. But if you look at longer term data, and you, when I, what is longer term? Uh, well, probably about a year or 18 months and beyond. If you look at longer term data, the literature would support that the headache prevalence and severity is not greater with the retrosigmoid approach, approach compared to the middle cranial fossa approach. Excellent. And that, last but uh, not least, observation for patients with serviceable hearing. What are your thoughts or what is the ar argument supporting that? The idea for observation, so in general, uh, depends on what center you're at and things like that. But in general, most people who are considered for an observational approach are those with tumors that are less than about 1.5 centimeters in the angle. And that's not a hard cutoff. Some people use a little bit higher, some people use a little bit lower. But once it's over that size, most people are considering upfront treatment and not observing it. The, argue, uh, the benefits of observation are multifold. First of all, it gives the patient some time 
to acclimate or kind of soak in the, the new diagnosis. Most people haven't heard of a vestibular schwannoma or an acoustic neuroma before. And when they're told that they have one, it's always a shock. You know, almost everybody starts off with having some hearing loss that leads to an audiogram that leads to an MRI. And the, the doctor always says, Hey, don't worry. You're not going to find, you're not going to have one of these tumors. We just have to do it because a very small percentage of people get these, you know, these brain tumors and we're just doing it because we want to, you know, just check. And by the way, the risk is about two to 5%, depending on what you look at for asymmetrical sudden hearing loss. So the patients heard this and then all of a sudden they get a call back from their, uh, from the MD and they say, you know what? I can't believe it, but you actually, you, you have one of these tumors. We didn't think you probably had, but we checked for that's probably all they hear initially. Um, they hear brain tumor and that creates these, sometimes creates a lot of anxiety or fear of neurological incapacitation or death. That's what a lot of people think about when they think of brain tumors, because some do that. And a lot of people just have this knee jerk reaction to say, get it out. And some of those people go on to have it out. And sometimes those people have a complication and then they learned or they thought about it more and they said, I didn't have to have this treatment necessarily. And now I'm living with this consequence of the treatment. And that gives you them regret, uh, which for some people is a very significant thing. So if a patient is diagnosed with a smaller tumor, you can say, let's, you know, there's nothing emergent about this. You can sit on it for a little bit, think about it, do some research. I'm going to give you some information about it. Go on, go to a patient support group, uh, the ANA, for example, Acoustic Neuroma Association, get more information about this. Uh, and you can probably make a better decision in general, you'll make a better decision if you can sit and think about it a little bit. Some people get past, or most people get past this knee-jerk fear of having the tumor there after they are living with it for a little bit. They see, well, hey, you know what? Nothing dramatically has changed, and they uh, can they have a little bit more peace about having it. It might help them not rush into something that they might ultimately regret. The other thing is it gives you some information about the biological behavior of the tumor. What does that mean? Well, sometimes the tumor will grow very fast after diagnosis. There is some data that says microsurgery is better. It provides a better outcome for tumor control uh, than radiosurgery for fast-growing tumors. And specifically, tumor control rates with radiosurgery for a non-growing or slow-growing vestibular schwannoma or all comers is about 90%. Some series are up to 95%, 5 and 10 year. But if, if your tumor is growing fast, how is that defined? Usually over 2.5 or 3 uh, millimeters per year. Then the, the tumor control rate drops down to about 70%, at least based on our data. Uh, there are some other studies out there that have slightly different results, but in general, it's thought that the, the outcome is a little bit poor. So in that situation, you might have, knowing that the tumor is gr growing fast might give you the option of having the more definitive treatment for that patient. The next thing that I think is valuable is it lets the patient... I think that if a person decides to observe their tumor and it starts to grow and they decide to have treatment, they will absorb the consequences of the treatment more than somebody who was pretty asymptomatic to begin with and didn't have a growing tumor. And then they get some side effects some treatment. Um, I think they can think about it better because they'll feel like this, the treatment was, was very warranted. They had a reason to treat it. It was growing and they had, they saw that on the scan and it makes them feel better. Like even if they, so say you, uh, your tumor starts to grow and you have surgery and you lose your hearing, they'll at least in their mind often say, well, I knew I needed to have it. But if you take a patient and you take them up front and you don't give them all the options, or you maybe present in a biased way, or even if they just decide to do it on their own after giving perfectly balanced counseling and they lose their hearing, they might kick themselves saying, oh boy, I could have waited and I would still have my hearing or even probably worse. Just say you go you go from a non-tinnitus to a horrible tinnitus and now you can't mask that side because it's deaf after your treatment or you develop a facial nerve paralysis on a small tumor, which is rare, but can happen. All these sorts of things. So a lot of, a lot of things to think about. I'd say the last thing is you build rapport with your patient by knowing them longer. After you see your patient, you talk to them, you get to see them back and discuss things again. And I think it helps with this whole... Um, feeling that surgeons only want to operate or radio surgeons only want to radiate. I think you're going to a center that offers all three and treating and using all three in a relative um, even frequency and then not rushing the patient to a treatment is just a healthy thing uh, for everybody in, in a lot of circumstances. I, I think a lot of these elements speak to how helpful it is to observe patients, at least initially. Um, another thing I've heard you talk about before, though, is this idea of, of preservation of function for the longest duration and, and the idea of, you know, that there are patients and, and certainly providers that advocate extended 
or indefinite observation of these tumors and, and, and maybe never treating them. Um, and, and most of that is bolstered on this foundation that it's about preserving function for as long as possible, knowing that treatment doesn't you know, improve neurologic function in most cases. Could you touch on that idea a little bit? Yeah, I'll present a couple concepts that are, I would say, kind of new and not necessarily completely adopted yet by everybody. The first is, you know, what is the rate? One of the fundamental questions is, what is what is the likelihood somebody will grow after diagnosis uh, if you have a small uh, tumor? A lot of this is based on the Danish data uh, that includes data um, from over 30 years on a very large, large number of people showing that anywhere from 12 to 30% of tumors grow and, and conversely. So, you know, 70 to 90% don't grow based on those, uh, based on those estimates. There's a lot to say about that. Uh, first of all, we have, our studies in the U S have selection bias. Uh, the Danish group has a unselected group of people. So we're more likely to have growing tumors just from that standpoint. We're more likely to get referrals after tumors growing, et cetera. The other thing is uh, early on in the Danish data, they use CT, which is very insensitive, insensitive to growth. They also defined uh, growth for an internal auditory canal tumor as needing to grow out from the internal auditory canal into the CPA. So if you had a two millimeter tumor in the internal auditory canal and it grew eight millimeters, but was still confined to the IEC, it wasn't considered a growing tumor, which you know uh, we would define as a growing tumor, but differences in definitions. Um, so there's a lot of differences. If you use the most sensitive measure in probably selected cohorts in the United States using volumetrics, there are two or three studies now that show this, uh, that basically 80% or more tumors ultimately grow after diagnosis. And usually, usually growth does occur early on, but it can be periods of quiescence and then growth. It's interesting, you know, the idea that if you just present the idea that a tumor could grow and then stop, it's not something we normally accept, but inherently in the observational strategy is this idea in that anybody with the sporadic vestibular schwannoma wasn't born with their tumor, so it had to grow to the size it did at diagnosis, but we're telling them that a lot of people don't grow. So inherently, we're saying the tumor could grow and stop. So why couldn't it grow and stop and grow and stop, or why couldn't it change more? We never find that out because we always treat a patient, even with observation, we treat them reflexively once we see any bit of growth. And the idea is that if we see growth, it's going to continue to grow, so we should treat it when it's small still. This you know, this thought process of this paradigm is internally conflicting. It, there's two different logics and they conflict with each other. I think, you know, based on our understanding, many tumors grow and then stop, grow and stop. And sometimes they grow at accelerated rate and then they decelerate. So I don't think using a threshold of two millimeters of growth. So just backing up, we define growth or true growth in most studies and clinically as greater than two millimeters of growth. And that's based on test retest variability or differences between scanners and detecting what we would consider real growth on an MRI scan. Uh, it's probably not good to use that. It's probably better to have some absolute threshold that we say, well, your outcome's going to start to deteriorate if we wait much longer. Another way to say that is if you have a four millimeter tumor and it grows two millimeters, your outcome is going to be identical for basically every treatment modality if everything else is the same. If it grew four millimeters, it's probably going to be about the same if it grew two centimeters, it's going to be worse. So there is a cut there. It does start to deteriorate. And where is that? Where does it start to deteriorate? Well, we did, we did a study that we looked at where the slope of risk is the steepest for a tumor based on tumor size for preserving facial nerve function, preserving hearing and having gross total tumor resection. That slippery slope centers around 1.4 to two centimeters in the angle. And so a little novel, but I think that it, if you're going to consider observation and you don't ascribe to the upfront treatment as a protective treatment modality for hearing, and you believe in the observational paradigm, then you probably shouldn't just reflexively treat it at two centimeters or two millimeters of growth, but rather you should even allow some growth tolerance up to a certain point. Based on my understanding, that point should in general be around 1.4 to 2. I want to also qualify that by saying there are so many factors that ultimately de determine when a patient should be treated. And this is just one of those. So I'm not saying you should watch every single growing tumor until it becomes two centimeters. I'm definitely not saying that. But to say that we need to reflexively treat every tumor when we see two millimeters of growth is probably also wrong. And so probably some tolerance of growth based on patient preference, need, existing function, expected outcomes, et cetera, is uh, more warranted, a more thoughtful approach. Well, awesome, Dr. Carlson. I think that certainly we got to talk about a lot of the really key uh, high-yield aspects. Obviously, we could just keep going and 
all the nuances of this. But um, before wrapping up this episode, is is there anything else that you would like to add or touch on um, that we didn't get to talk about today? John, I'd like to thank you again for organizing all of this. This is a really fun episode. And again, I just want to reiterate the idea that there are, uh, this is a very controversial topic. I've primarily presented uh, the way I think about this, but there are a lot of other very smart people uh, who are very talented clinicians, surgeons, uh, radio surgeons who think about it uh, somewhat differently as well. And I hope I uh, was able to present it in a, at least a reasonably balanced light. Um, I think that the key is that you understand your outcomes well of, in your practice and that you are able to provide accurate estimates of the risks of any of all the three treatment modalities uh, and the benefits of each treatment modality in a balanced manner for the patient so that they can make the best decision based on uh, their priorities and goals. Thanks, Dr. Carlson. Thanks again, John. All right, now I'll move on to the summary portion of the podcast. In this episode, we took a little bit of a deep dive on the topic of hearing preservation in the context of sporadic vestibular schwannoma, managing sporadic vestibular schwannoma, and uh, a, a secondary episode to our initial just broader vestibular schwannoma overview that Dr. Carlson did for us earlier. And, and, and the key element here to think about is that over the last several decades, we've seen a shift in the patient demographic where we have older patients um, with smaller tumors and less symptoms um, comprising the, the chief component of who is presenting with a vestibular schwannoma nowadays. And with that, um, it raises to the forefront this idea of what to do with patients that are minimally symptomatic and namely that, that one of the chief symptoms obviously being uh, the degree of hearing loss at time of diagnosis. And so spend a, a good bit talking about how do we define serviceable hearing in the context of research, but also how it relates clinically, um, knowing that there are a few different classification schema that are used, but underpinning all of those is the importance of word recognition score. And chiefly, when we think about prognosticators for patients, recognizing that this um, the better the word rec um, is really key that patients tend to say about, they have about 70% word rec um, is where they find that as useful hearing subjectively. But then also this idea of a 100% word rec, a, a perfect score on um, word recognition uh, testing being uh, one of the main positive prognosticators for long-term um, positive hearing outcomes. Talked a little bit about how the pathophysiology extends beyond just nerve compression, but also seems to involve this inflammatory protein um, buildup element to um, patients' hearing loss, and then went into uh, each of the three different management mo modalities, recognizing that there are providers across the country and across the world that argue for upfront radio surgery, upfront microsurgery, and upfront observation for the same patient with the same tumor and the same degree of hearing. Last portion of today is the uh, questions that we'll end with. We just have three questions for today. First question is just in your own words, describe what is the controversy when we talk about hearing preservation and the management of sporadic vestibular schwannoma. So this controversy is fundamentally what is the best treatment modality for a patient presenting with serviceable hearing and sporadic vestibular schwannoma. Stated otherwise, what treatment modality affords the patient the best opportunity at maintaining serviceable he hearing long-term or maintaining the highest degree of neurologic function long-term? And like I just mentioned, and like Dr. Carlson talked about, that there's many different camps on that. There's, there's data that shows that um, for the same tumor, the same patient, where you go across the country, you'll be recommended and you'll undergo a different treatment. And so it's an area that's a hot topic of research and um, ongoing controversy. Second question here, what are the top three predictors for maintaining serviceable hearing in a patient presenting with sporadic vestibular schwannoma and serviceable hearing at diagnosis? We touched on a number of different factors, but as Dr. Carlson mentioned, that the three big ones to think about is number one, when thinking about microsurgery in this context, tumor size is key um, and probably the, the most significant risk factor for um, maintaining serviceable hearing. Number two is baseline hearing status. Um, baseline being at time of diagnosis, what is their hearing status? And really this idea of 100% word rec, there seems to be something unique with this perfect uh, word recognition score it being distinct from a 95% word rec and something about 100% word rec having a positive prognosticator for maintaining serviceable hearing. And then the last one, the presence of a fundal fluid cap, i.e. the presence of CSF in the fundus um, lateral to the tumor between the inner ear and the tumor. Last question here, what is the rate of hearing preservation in microsurgery 
for a small IAC tumor. Depends on the uh, institution and provider experience, but about 50 to 60% of patients with a, a small um, IAC tumor, let's say five millimeters, confined to the intra internal auditory canal, 50% um, to 60% of these patients will maintain serviceable hearing after microsurgery. This chance deteriorates as the tumor increases in size with those over 1.5 centimeters in the cerebellopontine angle, so not including the IAC portion, have less than 10% chance of maintaining serviceable hearing. All right, that'll wrap things up for today. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time.